Based on the contents of the dead man's chest, a voyage is prepared for Treasure Island, and among the crew is a certain seafaring man with one leg. Robert Louis Stevenson, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. Many, many thanks to our financial supporters who pitch in every month to help us keep a going. If you enjoy the show, please sign up to be a supporter for as little as $5 a month. In exchange, we'll give you a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. Thank you so much. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you prefer listening on YouTube, our channel is now up to date. Last week, we met an old buccaneer who died at the Admiral Benbow Inn. Upon searching through the dead man's sea chest, young Jim Hawkins discovered a certain packet that he secreted away. Shortly afterwards, a band of pirates ransacked the inn, looking for the package that Jim had in his pocket. Jim then went to see Dr. Livesey and Squire Trelawney to try to make sense of it all. And now, Treasure Island, Part 2 of 7, by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 6 The Captain's Papers We rode hard all the way till we drew out before Dr. Livesey's door. The house was all dark to the front. Mr. Dance told me to jump down and knock, and Dogger gave me a stirrup to descend by. The door was opened almost at once by the maid. Is Dr. Livesey in? I asked. No, she said. He had come home in the afternoon, but had gone up to the hall to dine and pass the evening with the squire. So there we go, boys, said Mr. Dance. This time, as the distance was short, I did not mount, but ran with Dogger's stirrup leather to the lodge gates and up the long, leafless, moonlit avenue to where the white line of the hall buildings looked on either hand on great old gardens. Here Mr. Dance dismounted, and taking me along with him, was admitted at a word into the house. The servant led us down a matted passage, and showed us at the end into a great library, all lined with bookcases and busts upon the top of them, where the squire and Dr. Livesey sat, pipe in hand, on either side of a bright fire. I had never seen the squire so near at hand. He was a tall man, over six feet high, and broad in proportion, and he had a bluff, rough-and-ready face, all roughened and reddened and lined in his long travels. His eyebrows were very black and moved readily, and this gave him a look of some temper, not bad, you would say, but quick and high. "'Come in, Mr. Dance,' says he, very stately and condescending. "'Good evening, Dance.' 
says the doctor with a nod. And good evening to you, friend Jim. What good wind brings you here? The supervisor stood up straight and stiff, and told his story like a lesson. And you should have seen how the two gentlemen leaned forward, and looked at each other, and forgot to smoke in their surprise and interest. When they heard how my mother went back to the inn, Dr. Livesey fairly slapped his thigh, and the squire cried, Bravo! and broke his long pipe against the grate. Long before it was done, Mr. Trelawney, that, you will remember, was the squire's name, had got up from his seat and was striding about the room, and the doctor, as if to hear the better, had taken off his powdered wig and sat there looking very strange indeed, with his own close-cropped black pall. At last, Mr. Dance finished the story. Mr. Dance, said the squire, you are a very noble fellow, and as for riding down that black, atrocious miscreant, I regard it as an act of virtue, sir, like stamping on a cockroach. This lad Hawkins is a trump, I perceive. Hawkins, will you ring that bell? Mr. Dance must have some ale. And so, Jim, said the doctor, you have the thing that they were after, have you? Here it is, sir, said I, and gave him the oilskin packet. The doctor looked it all over, as if his fingers were itching to open it. But instead of doing that, he put it quietly in the pocket of his coat. Squire, said he, when Dance has had his ale, he must, of course, be off on his majesty's service. But I mean to keep Jim Hawkins here to sleep at my house, and with your permission, I propose we should have up the cold pie and let him sup. As you will, Livesey, said the squire. Hawkins has earned better than cold pie. So a big pigeon pie was brought in and put on a side table, and I made a hearty supper, for I was as hungry as a hawk, while Mr. Dance was further complimented, and at last dismissed. And now, squire, said the doctor, and now, Livesey, said the squire in the same breath, one at a time, one at a time, laughed Dr. Livesey. You have heard of this, Flint, I suppose? Heard of him? cried the squire. Heard of him, you say? He was the bloodthirstiest buccaneer that sailed. Blackbeard was a child to Flint. The Spaniards were so prodigiously afraid of him that, I tell you, sir, I was sometimes proud he was an Englishman. I've seen his topsails with these eyes, off Trinidad, and the cowardly son of a rum puncheon that I sailed with, put back, put back, sir, in the port of Spain. Well, I've heard of him myself in England, said the doctor. But the point is, had he money? Money? cried the squire. Have you heard the story? What were these villains after but money? What do they care for but money? Or what would they risk their rascal carcasses but money? That we shall soon know, replied the doctor. But you are so confoundedly hot-headed and exclamatory that I cannot get a word in. What I want to know is this. Supposing that I have here in my pocket some clue to where Flint buried his treasure, will that treasure amount to much? Amount, sir! cried the squire. It will amount to this. If we have the clue you talk about, 
I fit out a ship in Bristol Dock, and take you and Hawkins here along, and I'll have that treasure if I search a year. Very well, said the doctor. Now then, if Jim is agreeable, we'll open the packet. And he laid it before him on the table. The bundle was sewn together, and the doctor had to get out his instrument case and cut the stitches with his medical scissors. It contained two things, a book and a sealed paper. First of all, we'll try the book, observed the doctor. The squire and I were both peering over his shoulder as he opened it. For Dr. Livesey had kindly motioned me to come round from the side table, where I had been eating, to enjoy the sport of the search. On the first page, there were only some scraps of writing, such as a man with a pen in his hand might make for idleness or practice. One was the same as the tattoo mark, Billy Bones his fancy. Then there was Mr. W. Bones, mate. No more rum. Off Palm Key he got it. And some other snatches, mostly single words and unintelligible. I could not help wondering who it was that had got it, and what it was that he got. A knife in his back as like as not. Not much instruction there, said Dr. Livesey, as he passed on. The next ten or twelve pages were filled with a curious set of entries. There was a date at one end of the line, and at the other a sum of money, as in common account books. But instead of explanatory writing, only a varying number of crosses between the two. On the 12th of June, 1745, for instance, a sum of seventy pounds had plainly become due to someone, and there was nothing but six crosses to explain the cause. In a few cases, to be sure, the name of a place would be added, as Off Caracas, or a mere entry of latitude and longitude, as 62 degrees 17 minutes 20 seconds, 19 degrees 2 minutes 40 seconds. The record lasted over nearly 20 years, the amount of the separate entries growing larger as time went on, and at the end a grand total had been made out, after five or six wrong additions, and these words appended, Bones, his pile. I can't make head or tail of this, said Dr. Livesey. The thing is as clear as noonday, cried the squire. This is the black-hearted hound's account book. These crosses stand for the names of ships or towns that they sank or plundered. The sums the scoundrels share, and where he feared an ambiguity, you see, he added something clearer. Off Caracas, now, you see. Here was some unhappy vessel boarded off that coast. God help the poor souls that manned her. Coral, long ago. Right, said the doctor. See what it is to be a traveller. Right, and the amounts increase, you see, as he rose in rank. There was little else in the volume, but a few bearings of places, noted in the blank leaves towards the end, and a table for reducing French, English, and Spanish monies to a common value. Thrifty man, cried the doctor. He wasn't the one to be cheated. And now, said the squire, for the other. The paper had been sealed in several places with a thimble by way of seal. The very thimble, perhaps, 
that I had found in the captain's pocket. The doctor opened the seals with great care, and there fell out the map of an island, with latitude and longitude, soundings, names of hills and bays and inlets, and every particular that would be needed to bring a ship to a safe anchorage upon its shores. It was about nine miles long and five across, shaped, you might say, like a fat dragon standing up, and had two fine landlocked harbours, and a hill in the centre part marked the spyglass. There were several editions of a later date, but above all, three crosses of red ink, two on the north part of the island, one in the southwest, and beside this last, in the same red ink, and in a small, neat hand, very different from the captain's tottery characters, these words, Bulk of treasure here. Over on the back, the same hand had written this further information. Tall tree, spyglass shoulder, bearing a point to the north of Nor-Nor-East, Skeleton Island, east, southeast, and by east. Ten feet. The bar silver is in the north cache. You can find it by the trend of the east hummock, ten fathoms south of the black crag with a face on it. The arms are easy found, in the sand hill, north, point of north inlet cape, bearing east and a quarter N. J. F. That was all. But brief as it was, and to me incomprehensible, it filled the squire and Dr. Livesey with delight. Livesey, said the squire, you will give up this wretched practice at once. Tomorrow I start for Bristol. In three weeks' time, three weeks, two weeks, ten days, we'll have the best ship, sir, and the choicest crew in England. Hawkins shall come as cabin boy. You'll make a famous cabin boy, Hawkins. You, Livesey, are ship's doctor. I am admiral. We'll take Red Ruth, Joyce, and Hunter. We'll have favourable winds, a quick passage, and not the least difficulty in finding the spot, and money to eat, to roll in, to play duck and drake with ever after. Trelawney, said the doctor, I'll go with you, and I'll go bail for it. So will Jim, and be a credit to the undertaking. There's only one man I'm afraid of. And who's that? cried the squire. Name the dog, sir. You, replied the doctor, for you cannot hold your tongue. We are not the only men who know of this paper. These fellows who attacked the inn tonight, bold, desperate blades for sure, and the rest who stayed aboard that lugger, and more, I dare say, not far off, are, one and all, through thick and thin, bound that they'll get that money. We must none of us go alone till we get to sea. Jim and I shall stick together in the meanwhile. You'll take Joyce and Hunter when you ride to Bristol, and from first to last not one of us must breathe a word of what we've found. Lives in, returned the squire. You're always in the right of it. I'll be as silent as the grave. Part 2 The Sea Cook Chapter 1 I Go to Bristol It was longer than the squire imagined ere we were ready for the sea, and none of our first plans, not even Dr. Livesey's, of keeping me beside him, could be carried out as we intended. 
The doctor had to go to London for a physician to take charge of his practice. The squire was hard at work at Bristol, and I lived on at the hall under the charge of old Redruth, the gamekeeper, almost a prisoner, but full of sea dreams and the most charming anticipations of strange islands and adventures. I brooded by the hour together over the map, all the details of which I well remembered. Sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, I approached that island in my fancy from every possible direction. I explored every acre of its surface. I climbed a thousand times to that tall hill they call the spyglass, and from the top enjoyed the most wonderful and changing prospects. Sometimes the isle was thick with savages with whom we fought, sometimes full of dangerous animals that hunted us. But in all my fancies, nothing occurred to me so strange and tragic as our actual adventures. So the weeks passed on, till one fine day there came a letter addressed to Dr. Livesey with this addition. To be opened, in the case of his absence, by Tom Redruth or young Hawkins. Obeying this order, we found, or rather I found, for the gamekeeper was a poor hand at reading anything but print, the following important news. Old Anchor Inn, Bristol, March 1st, 17 blank. Dear Livesey, as I do not know whether you are at the hall or still in London, I send this in double to both places. The ship is bought and fitted. She lies at anchor, ready for sea. You never imagined a sweeter schooner. A child might sail her. Two hundred tons. Name? Hispaniola. I got her through my old friend Blandley, who has proved himself throughout the most surprising trump. The admirable fellow literally slaved in my interest, and so, I may say, did everyone in Bristol. As soon as they got wind of the port we sail for, treasure, I mean. Redruth, said I, interrupting the letter. Dr. Livesey will not like that. The squire has been talking after all. Well, who's a better right? growled the gamekeeper. A pretty rum go if squire ain't a talk for Dr. Livesey, I should think. At that I gave up all attempts at commentary and read straight on. Blandly himself found the Hispaniola, and by the most admirable management, got her for the merest trifle. There is a class of men in Bristol monstrously prejudiced against Blandly. They go the length of declaring that this honest creature would do anything for money, that the Hispaniola belonged to him, and that he sold it me absurdly high. The most transparent calumnies. None of them dare, however, to deny the merits of the ship. So far there was not a hitch, the work people, to be sure, riggers and what not, were most annoyingly slow. But time cured that. It was the crew that troubled me. I wished a round score of men, in case of natives, buccaneers, or the odious French. And I had the worry of the deuce itself to find so much as half a dozen, till the most remarkable stroke of fortune brought me the very man that I required. I was standing on the dock, when by the merest accident, I fell in talk with him. I found he was an old sailor, kept a public house, knew all the seafaring men in Bristol, had lost his health ashore, and wanted a good berth as cook to get to sea again. He had hobbled down there that morning, he said, to get a smell of the salt. I was monstrously touched. So had you have been. And out of pure pity, I engaged him on the spot to be ship's cook. Long John Silver, he is called, 
and has lost a leg, but that I regarded as a recommendation, since he lost it in his country service, under the immortal hawk. He has no pension, lives he? Imagine the abominable age we live in. Well, sir, I thought I had only found a cook, but it was a crew I had discovered. Between Silver and myself, we got together in a few days a company of the toughest old salts imaginable. Not pretty to look at, but fellows, by their faces, of the most indomitable spirit. I declare we could fight a frigate. Long John even got rid of two out of the six or seven I had already engaged. He showed me in a moment that they were just the sort of freshwater swabs we had to fear in an adventure of importance. I am in the most magnificent health and spirits, eating like a bull, sleeping like a tree, yet I shall not enjoy a moment till I hear my old tarpaulins tramping round the capstan. Seaward ho! Hang the treasure! It's the glory of the sea that has turned my head. So now, Livesey, come post. Do not lose an hour, if you respect me. Let young Hawkins go at once to see his mother, with Redruth for a guard, and then both come full speed to Bristol. John Trelawney. Postscript. I did not tell you that Blandley, who, by the way, is to send a consort after us if we don't turn up by the end of August, has found an admirable fellow for sailing-master, a stiff man, which I regret, but in all other respects a treasure. Long John Silver unearthed a very competent man for a mate, a man named Arrow. I have a boatswain who pipes, lives he? So things shall go man-of-war fashion on board the good ship Hispaniola. I forgot to tell you that Silver is a man of substance. I know of my own knowledge that he has a banker's account, which has never been overdrawn. He leaves his wife to manage the inn, and as she is a woman of colour, a pair of old bachelors like you and I may be excused for guessing that it is the wife, quite as much as the health, that sends him back to roving. J.T. P.P.S. Hawkins may stay one night with his mother. J.T. You can fancy the excitement into which that letter put me. I was half beside myself with glee, and if ever I despised a man, it was old Tom Redruth, who could do nothing but grumble and lament. Any of the under-gamekeepers would gladly have changed places with him, but such was not the squire's pleasure, and the squire's pleasure was like law among them all. Nobody but old Redruth would have dared so much as even to grumble. The next morning he and I set out on foot for the Admiral Benbow, and there I found my mother in good health and spirits. The captain, who had so long been a cause of so much discomfort, was gone where the wicked cease from troubling. The squire had had everything repaired, and the public rooms and the sign repainted, and had added some furniture, above all a beautiful armchair for mother in the bar. He had found her a boy as an apprentice also, so that she could not want help while I was gone. It was on seeing that boy that I understood for the first time my situation. I had thought up to that moment of the adventures before me, not at all of the home that I was leaving. And now, at sight of this clumsy stranger, who was to stay here in my place beside my mother, I had my first attack of tears. I am afraid I led that boy a dog's life, for as he was new to the work, I had a hundred opportunities of setting him right and putting him down, and I was not slow to profit by them. The night passed, and the next day after dinner 
Redruth and I were afoot again and on the road. I said goodbye to Mother and the cove where I had lived since I was born, and the dear old Admiral Benbow, since he was repainted, no longer quite so dear. One of my last thoughts was of the captain, who had so often strode along the beach with his cocked hat, his sabre-cut cheek, and his old brass telescope. Next moment we had turned the corner, and my home was out of sight. The mail picked us up about dusk at the Royal George on the heath. I was wedged in between Redruth and a stout old gentleman, and in spite of the swift motion and the cold night air, I must have dozed a great deal from the very first, and then slept like a log up hill and down dale, through stage after stage. For when I was awakened at last, it was by a punch in the ribs, and I opened my eyes to find that we were standing still before a large building in a city street, and that the day had already broken a long time. Where are we? I asked. Bristol, said Tom. Get down. Mr. Trelawney had taken up his residence at an inn far down the docks to superintend the work upon the schooner. Thither we had now to walk, and our way, to my great delight, lay along the quays and beside the great multitude of ships of all sizes and rigs and nations. In one, sailors were singing at their work. In another, there were men aloft, high over my head, hanging to threads that seemed no thicker than a spider's. Though I had lived by the shore all my life, I seemed never to have been near the sea till then. The smell of tar and salt was something new. I saw the most wonderful figureheads that had all been far over the ocean. I saw besides many old sailors with rings in their ears and whiskers curled in ringlets and tarry pigtails and their swaggering clumsy sea-walk and if I had seen as many kings or archbishops I could not have been more delighted. And I was going to see myself, to see in a schooner, with a piping boatswain and pigtailed singing seamen, to see, bound for an unknown island and to seek for buried treasure. While I was still in this delightful dream, we came suddenly in front of a large inn and met Squire Trelawney, all dressed out like a sea officer, in stout blue cloth, coming out of the door with a smile on his face and a capital imitation of a sailor's walk. Here you are, he cried, and the doctor came last night from London. Bravo! The ship's company complete. Oh, sir, cried I, when do we sail? Sail, says he, we sail tomorrow. Chapter 2 at the sign of the spyglass. When I had done breakfasting, the squire gave me a note addressed to John Silver at the sign of the spyglass, and told me I should easily find the place by following the line of docks and keeping a bright lookout for a little tavern with a large brass telescope for sign. I set off, overjoyed at this opportunity, to see some more of the ships and seamen and picked my way among the great crowd of people and carts and bales, for the dock was now at its busiest, until I found the tavern in question. It was a bright enough little place of entertainment. The sign was newly painted. The windows had neat red curtains. The floor was cleanly sanded. There was a street on each side, 
and an open door on both, which made the large, low room pretty clear to see in, in spite of clouds of tobacco smoke. The customers were mostly seafaring men, and they talked so loudly that I hung at the door, almost afraid to enter. As I was waiting, a man came out of a side room, and at a glance I was sure he must be Long John. His left leg was cut off, close by the hip, and under the left shoulder he carried a crutch, which he managed with wonderful dexterity, hopping about upon it like a bird. He was very tall and strong, with a face as big as a ham, plain and pale, but intelligent and smiling. Indeed, he seemed in the most cheerful spirits, whistling as he moved about among the tables, with a merry word or a slap on the shoulder for the more favoured of his guests. Now, to tell you the truth, from the very first mention of Long John in Squire Trelawney's letter, I had taken a fear in my mind that he might prove to be the very one-legged sailor whom I had watched for so long at the old Benbow. But one look at the man before me was enough. I had seen the captain, and Black Dog, and the blind man, Pew, and I thought I knew what a buccaneer was like, a very different creature, according to me, from this clean and pleasant-tempered landlord. I plucked up courage at once, crossed the threshold, and walked right up to the man where he stood, propped on his crutch, talking to a customer. Mr. Silver, sir? I asked, holding out the note. Yes, my lad, said he. Such is my name, to be sure. And who may you be? And then, as he saw the squire's letter, he seemed to me to give something almost like a start. Oh, said he, quite loud, and offering his hand. I see. You are our new cabin boy. Pleased I am to see you. And he took my hand in his large, firm grasp. Just then one of the customers at the far side rose suddenly and made for the door, it was close by him, and he was out in the street in a moment, but his hurry had attracted my notice, and I recognized him at a glance. It was the tallow-faced man, wanting two fingers, who had come first to the Admiral Benbow. Oh! I cried. Stop him! It's Black Dog! I don't care two coppers who he is, cried Silver, but he hasn't paid his score, Harry! Run and catch him! One of the others, who was nearest the door, leaped up and started in pursuit. "'If he were Admiral Hawk, he shall pay his score,' cried Silver, and then, relinquishing my hand. "'Who did you say he was?' he asked. "'Black want?' "'Dog, sir,' said I. "'Has Mr. Trelawney not told you of the buccaneers? He was one of them.' "'So,' cried Silver, "'in my house. Ben, run and help Harry!' One of those swabs, was he? Was that you drinking with him, Morgan? Step up here. The man whom he called Morgan, an old grey-haired mahogany-faced sailor, came forward pretty sheepishly, rolling his quid. Now, Morgan, said Long John very sternly, you never clapped your eyes on that black, black dog before, did you now? Not I, sir, said Morgan with a salute. You didn't know his name, did you? No, sir. By the powers, Tom Morgan, it's as good for you, exclaimed the landlord. If you had been mixed up with the like of that, you would never have put another foot in my house, you may lay to that. And what was he saying to you? I don't really know, sir, 
answered Morgan. You call that a head on your shoulders or a blessed dead eye? cried Long John. Don't rightly know, do you? Perhaps you don't happen to rightly know who you was speaking to, perhaps. Come now, what was he jawing? Voyages? Captains? Ships? Pipe up, what was it? We was a-talking a keel-hauling, answered Morgan. Keel-hauling, was you? And a mighty suitable thing, too, and you may lay to that. Get back to your place for a lover, Tom. And then, as Morgan rolled back to his seat, Silver added to me in a confidential whisper, it was very flattering, as I thought. He's quite an honest man, Tom Morgan, only stupid. And now, he ran on again, aloud. Let's see, Black Dog. Now, I don't know the name, not I. Yet I kind of think I've, yes, I've seen the swab. He used to come here with a blind beggar he used. That he did, you may be sure, said I. I knew that blind man, too. His name was Pew. It was! cried Silver, now quite excited. Pew! That were his name for certain. Ah, he looked a shark, he did. If we run down this black dog now, there'll be news for Captain Trelawney. Ben's a good runner. Few seamen run better than Ben. He should run him down hand over hand by the powers. He talked a keel-hauling, did he? I'll keel-haul him. All the time he was jerking out these phrases, he was stumping up and down the tavern on his crutch, slapping tables with his hand, and giving such a show of excitement as would have convinced an old Bailey judge or a Bow Street runner. My suspicions had been thoroughly reawakened on finding Black Dog at the spyglass, and I watched the cook narrowly. But he was too deep, and too ready, and too clever for me. And by the time the two men had come back out of breath and confessed that they had lost the track in the crowd, and been scolded like thieves, I would have gone bail for the innocence of Long John Silver. See here now, Hawkins, said he. Here's a blessed hard thing on a man like me now, ain't it? There's Captain Trelawney. What's he to think? Here I have this confounded son of a Dutchman sitting in my own house, drinking of my own rum. Here you comes and tells me of it plain. And here I let him give us all the slip before my blessed deadlights. Now, Hawkins, you do me justice with the captain. You're a lad, you are, but you're smart as paint. I see that when you first come in. Now, here it is. What could I do with this old timber I hobble on? When I was an A.B. master mariner, I'd have come up alongside of him hand over hand and broached him too in a brace of old shakes I would, but now... And then all of a sudden he stopped, and his jaw dropped as though he had remembered something. The score! he burst out. Three goes o' rum! I shiver me timbers if I hadn't forgotten my score! And falling on a bench, he laughed until the tears ran down his cheeks. I could not help joining, and we laughed together, peal after peal, until the tavern rang again. Why, what a precious old sea-calf I am, he said at last, wiping his cheeks. You and me should get on well, Hawkins, for I'll take my Davy, I should be rated ship's boy. But come now, stand by to go about. This won't do. Duty is duty, messmates. I'll put on my old cockerel hat and step along of you to Captain Trelawney and report this here affair. For mind you, it's serious, young Hawkins. 
and neither you nor me's come out of it with what I should make so bold as to call credit. Nor you neither, says you, not smart. None of the pair of us smart. But dash my buttons, that was a good un about my score. And he began to laugh again, and that so heartily, that though I did not see the joke as he did, I was again obliged to join him in his mirth. On our little walk along the quays, he made himself the most interesting companion, telling me about the different ships that we passed by, their rig, tonnage, and nationality, explaining the work that was going forward, how one was discharging, another taking in cargo, and a third making ready for sea, and every now and then telling me some little anecdote of ships or seamen, or repeating a nautical phrase till I had learned it perfectly. I began to see that here was one of the best of possible shipmates. When we got to the inn, the squire and Dr. Livesey were seated together, finishing a quart of ale with a toast in it, before they should go aboard the schooner on a visit of inspection. Long John told the story from first to last, with a great deal of spirit and the most perfect truth. That was how it were now, weren't it, Hawkins? He would say, now and again, and I could always bear him entirely out. The two gentlemen regretted that Black Dog had got away, but we all agreed there was nothing to be done, and after he had been complimented, Long John took up his crutch and departed. All hands aboard by four this afternoon, shouted the squire after him. Aye, aye, sir, cried the cook in the passage. Well, squire, said Dr. Livesey, I don't put much faith in your discoveries as a general thing, but I will say this. John Silver suits me. The man's a perfect trump, declared the squire. And now, added the doctor, Jim may come on board with us, may he not? To be sure he may, says the squire. Take your hat, Hawkins, and we'll see the ship. Chapter 3 Powder and Arms The Hispaniola lay some way out, and we went under the figureheads and round the sterns of many other ships, and their cables sometimes grated underneath our keel, and sometimes swung above us. At last, however, we got alongside, and were met and saluted as we stepped aboard by the mate, Mr. Arrow, a brown old sailor with earrings in his ears and a squint. He and the squire were very thick and friendly, but I soon observed that things were not the same between Mr. Trelawney and the captain. This last was a sharp-looking man, who seemed angry with everything on board, and was soon to tell us why, for we had hardly got down into the cabin when a sailor followed us. Captain Smollett, sir, axing to speak with you, said he. I am always at the captain's orders. Show him in, said the squire. The captain, who was close behind his messenger, entered at once and shut the door behind him. Well, Captain Smollett, what have you to say? All well, I hope, all shipshape and seaworthy. Well, sir, said the captain, better speak plain, I believe, even at the risk of offence. I don't like this cruise. I don't like the men, and I don't like my officer. That's short and sweet. Perhaps, sir, you don't like the ship, inquired the squire, very angry, as I could see. I can't speak as to that, sir, not having seen her tried, said the captain. She seems a clever craft. More I can't say. 
Possibly, sir, you may not like your employer either, says the squire. But here Dr. Livesey cut in. Stay a bit, said he, stay a bit. No use of such questions as that but to produce ill feeling. The captain has said too much or he has said too little, and I am bound to say that I require an explanation of his words. You don't, you say, like this cruise. Now, why? I was engaged, sir, on what we call sealed orders, to sail this ship for that gentleman where he should bid me, said the captain. So far so good. But now I find that every man before the mast knows more than I do. I don't call that fair now, do you? No, said Dr. Livesey. I don't. Next, said the captain, I learn we are going after treasure. Hear it from my own hands, mind you. Now treasure is ticklish work. I don't like treasure voyages on any account. I don't like them, above all, when they are secret, and when, begging your pardon, Mr. Trelawney, the secret has been told to the parrot. Silver's parrot? asked the squire. It's a way of speaking, said the captain. Blabbed, I mean. It's my belief neither of you gentlemen know what you are about, but I'll tell you my way of it. Life or death and a close run. That is all clear, and I dare to say true enough, replied Dr. Livesey. We take the risk, but we are not so ignorant as you believe us. Next, you say you don't like the crew. Are they not good seamen? I don't like them, sir, returned Captain Smollett. And I think I should have had the choosing of my own hands if we go to that. Perhaps you should, replied the doctor. My friend should perhaps have taken you along with him. But the slight, if there be one, was unintentional. And you don't like Mr. Arrow? I don't, sir. I believe he's a good seaman, but he's too free with the crew to be a good officer. A mate should keep himself to himself, shouldn't drink with the men before the mast. Do you mean he drinks? cried the squire. No, sir, replied the captain, only that he's too familiar. Well, now, and the short and long of it, captain? asked the doctor. Tell us what you want. Well, gentlemen, are you determined to go on this cruise? Like iron, answered the squire. Very good, said the captain. Then, as you've heard me very patiently, saying things that I could not prove, hear me a few words more. They are putting the powder and the arms in the forehold. Now, you have a good place under the cabin. Why not put them there? First point. Then, you are bringing four of your own people with you, and they tell me some of them are to be berthed forward. Why not give them the berths here beside the cabin? Second point. Any more? asked Mr. Trelawney. One more, said the captain. There's been too much blabbing already. Far too much, agreed the doctor. I'll tell you what I've heard myself, continued Captain Smollett, that you have a map of an island, that there's crosses on the map to show where treasure is, and that the island lies... And then he named the latitude and longitude exactly. I never told that, cried the squire, to a soul. The hands know it, sir, returned the captain. Livesey, that must have been you or Hawkins, cried the squire. It doesn't much matter who it was, replied the doctor. And I could see that neither he nor the captain paid much regard to Mr. Trelawney's protestations. 
neither did I, to be sure. He was so loose a talker. Yet in this case I believe he was really right, and that nobody had told the situation of the island. Well, gentlemen, continued the captain, I don't know who has this map, but I make it a point it shall be kept secret even from me and Mr. Arrow. Otherwise I would ask you to let me resign. I see, said the doctor. You wish us to keep this matter dark, and to make a garrison of the stern part of the ship, manned with my friend's own people, and provided with all the arms and powder on board. In other words, you fear a mutiny. Sir, said Captain Smollett, with no intention to take offence, I deny your right to put words into my mouth. No captain, sir, would be justified in going to sea at all, if he had ground enough to say that. As for Mr. Arrow, I believe him thoroughly honest. Some of the men are the same. All may be, for what I know. But I am responsible for the ship's safety, and the life of every man jack aboard of her. I see things going, as I think, not quite right. And I ask you to take certain precautions, or let me resign my berth, and that's all. Captain Smollett, began the doctor with a smile. Did ever you hear the fable of the mountain and the mouse? You'll excuse me, I dare say. But you remind me of that fable. When you came in here, I'll stake my wig, you meant more than this. Doctor, said the captain, you are smart. When I came in here, I meant to get discharged. I had no thought that Mr. Trelawney would hear a word. No more I would, cried the squire. Had Livesey not been here, I should have seen you to the deuce. As it is, I have heard you. I will do as you desire, but I think the worse of you. That's as you please, sir, said the captain. You'll find I do my duty. And with that, he took his leave. Trelawney, said the doctor, contrary to all my notions, I believe you have managed to get two honest men on board with you. That man and John Silver. Silver, if you like, cried the squire. But as for that intolerable humbug, I declare I think his conduct unmanly, unsailorly, and downright un-English. Well, says the doctor, we shall see. When we came on deck, the men had begun already to take out the arms and powder, yo-hoing at their work, while the captain and Mr. Arrow stood by superintending. The new arrangement was quite to my liking. The whole schooner had been overhauled. Six berths had been made astern out of what had been the after part of the main hold, and this set of cabins was only joined to the galley and forecastle by a sparred passage on the port side. It had been originally meant that the captain, Mr. Arrow, Hunter, Joyce, the doctor, and the squire were to occupy these six berths. Now, Redruth and I were to get two of them, and Mr. Arrow and the captain were to sleep on deck in the companion, which had been enlarged on each side till you might almost have called it a roundhouse. Very low it was still, of course, but there was room to swing two hammocks, and even the mate seemed pleased with the arrangement. Even he, perhaps, had been doubtful as to the crew, but that is only guess, for as you shall hear, we had not long the benefit of his opinion. We were all hard at work, changing the powder and the berths, when the last man or two, and Long John along with them, came off in a shore boat. The cook came up the side like a monkey for cleverness, 
and as soon as he saw what was doing, So, ho, mates, says he, what's this? We're a changing of the powder, Jack, answers one. Why, by the powers, cried Long John. If we do, we'll miss the morning tide. My orders, said the captain shortly. You may go below, my man. Hans will want supper. Aye, aye, sir, answered the cook. And touching his forelock, he disappeared at once in the direction of his galley. That's a good man, captain, said the doctor. Very likely, sir, replied Captain Smollett. Easy with that, men, easy, he ran on to the fellows who were shifting the powder. And then suddenly observing me, examining the swivel we carried amidships, a long brass nine. Here you, ship's boy, he cried. Out of that, off with you to the cook and get some work. And then, as I was hurrying off, I heard him say, quite loudly, to the doctor, I'll have no favourites on my ship. I assure you I was quite of the squire's way of thinking, and hated the captain deeply. Chapter 4 The Voyage All that night we were in a great bustle, getting things stowed in their place, and boatfuls of the squire's friends, Mr. Blandley and the like, coming off to wish him a good voyage and a safe return. We never had a night at the Admiral Benbow when I had half the work, and I was dog-tired when, a little before dawn, the boatswain sounded his pipe and the crew began to man the capstan bars. I might have been twice as weary, yet I would not have left the deck. All was so new and interesting to me. The brief commands, the shrill note of the whistle, the men bustling to their places in the glimmer of the ship's lanterns. Now, barbecue, tip us a stave, cried one voice. The old one, cried another. Aye, aye, mates, said Long John, who was standing by with his crutch under his arm, and at once broke out in the air and words I knew so well. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest, and then the whole crew bore chorus. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum and at the third hoe drove the bars before them with a will. Even at that exciting moment it carried me back to the old Admiral Benbow in a second, and I seemed to hear the voice of the captain piping in the chorus. But soon the anchor was shot up, soon it was hanging dripping at the bows, soon the sails began to draw, and the land and shipping to flit by on either side, and before I could lie down to snatch an hour of slumber, the Hispaniola had begun her voyage to the Isle of Treasure. I am not going to relate that voyage in detail. It was fairly prosperous. The ship proved to be a good ship, the crew were capable seamen, and the captain thoroughly understood his business. But before we came the length of Treasure Island, two or three things had happened which require to be known. Mr. Arrow, first of all, turned out even worse than the captain had feared. He had no command among the men, and people did what they pleased with him, but that was by no means the worst of it, for after a day or two at sea, he began to appear on deck with hazy eye, red cheeks, stuttering tongue and other marks of drunkenness. Time after time he was ordered below in disgrace. Sometimes he fell and cut himself, sometimes he lay all day long in his little bunk at one side of the companion, sometimes for a day or two he would be almost sober and attend to his work at least passably. In the meantime, we
we could never make out where he got the drink. That was the ship's mystery. Watch him as we pleased, we could do nothing to solve it. And when we asked him to his face, he would only laugh if he were drunk, and if he were sober, deny solemnly that he ever tasted anything but water. He was not only useless as an officer and a bad influence amongst the men, but it was plain that at this rate he must soon kill himself outright. So nobody was much surprised, nor very sorry, when one dark night, with a head sea, he disappeared entirely and was seen no more. Overboard, said the captain. Well, gentlemen, that saves the trouble of putting him in irons. But there we were without a mate, and it was necessary, of course, to advance one of the men. The boatswain, Job Anderson, was the likeliest man aboard, and though he kept his old title, he served in a way as mate. Mr. Trelawney had followed the sea, and his knowledge made him very useful, for he often took a watch himself in easy weather. And the coxswain, Israel Hands, was a careful, wily, old, experienced seaman, who could be trusted at a pinch with almost anything. He was a great confidant of Long John Silver, and so the mention of his name leads me on to speak of our ship's cook, Barbecue, as the men called him. Aboard ship he carried his crutch by a lanyard round his neck, to have both hands as free as possible. It was something to see him wedge the foot of the crutch against a bulkhead, and propped against it, yielding to every movement of the ship, get on with his cooking like someone safe ashore. Still more strange was it to see him, in the heaviest of weather, cross the deck. He had a line or two rigged up to help him across the widest spaces. Long John's earrings, they were called, and he would hand himself from one place to another, now using the crutch, now trailing it alongside by the lanyard, as quickly as another man could walk. Yet some of the men who had sailed with him before expressed their pity to see him so reduced. "'He's no common man, Barbecue,' said the coxswain to me. "'He had good schooling in his young days, and can speak like a book when so minded, and brave?' A lion's nothing alongside a Long John. I've seen him grapple four and knock their heads together, him unarmed. All the crew respected and even obeyed him. He had a way of talking to each and doing everybody some particular service. To me he was unweariedly kind, and always glad to see me in the galley, which he kept as clean as a new pin, the dishes hanging up, burnished, and his parrot in a cage in one corner. Come away, Hawkins, he would say. Come and have a yarn with John. Nobody more welcome than yourself, my son. Sit you down and hear the news. Here's Captain Flint. I calls my parrot Captain Flint after the famous buccaneer. Here's Captain Flint predicting success to our voyage. Wasn't you, Captain? And the parrot would say with great rapidity, Pieces of eight, pieces of eight, pieces of eight till you wondered that it was not out of breath, or till John threw his handkerchief over the cage. Now that bird, he would say, is maybe two hundred years old, Hawkins. They live forever, mostly. And if anybody's seen more wickedness, it must be the devil himself. She's sailed with England, the great Captain England, the pirate. She's been at Madagascar and at Malabar and Suriname and Providence and Portobello. She was at the fishing up of the wrecked plate ships. 
It's there she learned pieces of eight. And little wonder. Three hundred and fifty thousand of them, Hawkins. She was at the boarding of the Viceroy of the Indies out of Goa, she was. And to look at her, you would think she was a babby. But you smelt powder, didn't you, Captain? Stand by to go about, the parrot would scream. Ha, <laughs> she's a handsome craft, she is, the cook would say, and give her sugar from his pocket. And then the bird would peck at the bars and swear straight on, passing belief for wickedness. There, John would add. You can't touch pitch and not be mocked, lad. Here's this poor old innocent bird of mine, swearing blue fire, and none the wiser, you may lay to that. She would swear the same in a manner of speaking before a chaplain. And John would touch his forelock with a solemn way he had that made me think he was the best of men. In the meantime, the squire and Captain Smollett were still on pretty distant terms with one another. The squire made no bones about the matter. He despised the captain. The captain, on his part, never spoke but when he was spoken to, and then sharp and short and dry, and not a word wasted. He owned, when driven into a corner, that he seemed to have been wrong about the crew, that some of them were as brisk as he wanted to see, and all had behaved fairly well. As for the ship, he had taken a downright fancy to her. She'll lie a point nearer the wind than a man has a right to expect of his own married wife, sir. But, he would add, all I say is, we're not home again, and I don't like the cruise. The squire, at this, would turn away and march up and down the deck, chin in air. A trifle more of that man, he would say, and I shall explode. We had some heavy weather, which only proved the qualities of the Hispaniola. Every man on board seemed well content, and they must have been hard to please, if they had been otherwise, for it is my belief there was never a ship's company so spoiled since Noah put to sea. Double grog was going on the least excuse. There was duff on odd days, as, for instance, if the squire heard it was any man's birthday, and always a barrel of apples standing broached in the waist for any one to help himself that had a fancy. Never knew good come of it yet, the captain said to Dr. Livesey. Spoil forecastle hands, make devils, that's my belief. But good did come of the apple barrel, as you shall hear, for if it had not been for that, we should have had no note of warning, and might all have perished by the hand of treachery. This was how it came about. We had run up the trades to get the wind of the island we were after. I am not allowed to be more plain. And now we were running down for it with a bright lookout day and night. It was about the last day of our outward voyage by the largest computation. Sometime that night, or at latest before noon on the morrow, we should sight the treasure island. We were heading south-southwest, and had a steady breeze abeam and a quiet sea. The Hispaniola rolled steadily, dipping her bowsprit now and then with a whiff of spray. All was drawing a low and aloft. Everyone was in the bravest spirits because we were now so near an end of the first part of our adventure. Now, just after sundown, when all my work was over, and I was on my way to my berth, it occurred to me that I should like an apple. I ran on deck. The watch was all forward, looking out for the island. The man at the helm was watching the luff of the sail 
and whistling away gently to himself. And that was the only sound excepting the swish of the sea against the bows and around the sides of the ship. In I got bodily into the apple barrel, and found there was scarce an apple left. But sitting down there in the dark, what with the sound of the waters and the rocking movement of the ship, I had either fallen asleep or was on the point of doing so, when a heavy man sat down with rather a clash close by. The barrel shook as he leaned his shoulders against it, and I was just about to jump up when the man began to speak. It was Silver's voice, and before I had heard a dozen words, I would not have shown myself for all the world, but lay there, trembling and listening, in the extreme of fear and curiosity. For from these dozen words, I understood that the lives of all the honest men aboard depended upon me alone. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Treasure Island Part 2 of 7 by Robert Louis Stevenson. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off anything in the store. Give more and you get more. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.